Hi there. My name is Ari Satok, and I want to welcome you to my podcast, Once Upon a Conversation. I'm an author and an educator living in New York City, and I've recently embarked on a journey to have conversations with 100 interesting people about their lives and their ideas and share those interviews with my listeners. The aim is simple. People are full of wisdom, and so my goal in these interviews is to tease that wisdom out to then share it with others, since wisdom can inspire us, open our hearts, change the way we see the world or ourselves. I'm extremely lucky to have amazing people joining me in these 100 conversations, and I'm excited today to be interviewing Tez Steinberg. It strikes me as almost impossible to not be inspired by Tez Steinberg. He has rowed solo across the Pacific Ocean from California to Hawaii with no prior experience on an epic 2,700-mile journey that took 71 days. He's run ultramarathons, done Ironmans, and along the way, he's modeled a kind of attitude towards pushing one's limits and dealing with challenge, setback, and even sometimes tragedy that I think we all can learn from. My amazing late grandfather, Arnold Noyek, used to sign every one of his emails with the phrase, always moving forward. And Tez strikes me as a guy who truly lives out that ethos. I first met Tez when the two of us were giving talks at the same event, and since then have watched his adventures with a mix of admiration, awe, and occasional disbelief. So I'm very grateful to get to talk to him more today and learn about his life and his ideas. So Tez, thank you so much for being here. All right, so glad to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. So uh, there's a lot of ground I'm hoping we cover together today, but I want to start by talking about your experience as an endurance athlete um, or endurance artist, as you refer to yourself on Instagram. And so I want to ask, when did you first get into endurance sports and what propelled you into it? I first got into endurance sports in 2008. I was going through a period of depression in college. I was pretty much just sitting on the sofa, smoking spliffs. And my housemate was like, dude, you got to get off of that thing. And he said, let's let's do a triathlon together. Started off with a, a sprint triathlon and we set our goals on doing a half Ironman the first season. And as I started to train, not surprisingly, started to feel better. The connection between exercise and mental health is robust and well-documented, so there's no surprise there. But what was a surprise is that it spilled over into other areas of my life. As I began to grow, learn to swim better, these different things, it gave me confidence in other areas of my life. So it helped me recover from depression. I went on to run a bunch of marathons, ultra marathons, was doing that for about um, 10 years, and also began seeing that these events are ways to inspire other people and sometimes raise funds. In my first Ironman, I raised, I'm going to say about eight grand for the Minneapolis American Indian Center. Wow. So I started figuring out how I could combine these adventures with storytelling and funds for impact. And that sort of morphed into this idea of endurance art, which is what I do now. These long distance extreme expeditions share the story live and then also through other media like podcasts and film to inspire people and raise funds and action to help solve the issues of our time. So I call that endurance art. I, I love the term endurance art. Um, and I'm going to ask about some of these journeys you've gone on. Do you remember that in your life, what, a first time when you surprised yourself with the ability to do something you didn't think you could do, like even as a child, perhaps? You know, the childhood memories don't come, come to me right now. But the first instance of, of doing something, what, one instance that comes to mind. So Ari, you and I both went to United World Colleges. I, I didn't uh, go, but I, I did a okay. research project on you're it. That's how it yeah. You're basically an alum. I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a honorary I, alum status. I appreciate it. Um, uh, so 
you know, Ari did this project on United World Colleges, this movement of international schools dedicated to peace and sustainability. So when I was 17, I got one of these scholarships to this school in Italy, 200 students from 85 countries, and it was right on the coast of the Adriatic Sea. My classmate and I decided to get in the water and swim to a neighboring village, which is, you know, hindsight, not, not the safest idea. We were fine swimmers, but we weren't like great swimmers. And we get in and we swim about halfway and we're getting super exhausted and we crawl up onto this rock that's like poking out of the waves and cling there for about 20 minutes, catch our breath and then finish swimming. And it's probably not that far, maybe like one or two kilometers um, total. But we make it to the next village and we're like, whoa, dude, we just swam to Sistiana. And then we walked home and it was this cool moment. We're like, huh, you can kind of just go and do stuff. You know, that's, that's, that's one moment where he kind of dawned on me that wait a minute, maybe some of these assumptions that I had about what, what I could do aren't actually valid. And, and to even go to that first one, and then we're going we're gonna to go to some of these other journeys, but what does it feel like when you, when you come through doing something that at first maybe seemed like a crazy idea or like you wouldn't be able to do it? Like, what, what does it feel like? Oh, I mean, it's, it's a very empowering thing, right? It, it shifts our perception of what's possible. So um, the challenge is always taking that from one domain and doing it in another, like realizing that, okay, if I can surpass or exceed or completely change my assessment in this one area, is that true in other areas of my life? So that continues to be the challenge. But the important thing is really taking that frame and saying, okay, then maybe there's maybe maybe my my assessment wasn't actually accurate. Maybe there's more I can do. Mm. I'm, I'm going to come back to that, uh, but I want to ask. So if we go to the the project I first encountered you doing, <laughs> um, it was an epic, epic row, uh, a row. As I mentioned uh, earlier, from California to Hawaii, <laughs> I want you to take us into what was happening in your mind when you even conceptualized that idea. Well, it, when I first conceptualized it, it wasn't even a, a row across the Pacific. I first started planning a row across the Atlantic and I actually failed. I didn't raise the funds in time and, and didn't pull it together. That's another story. But as for what led me to row across an ocean in the first place, I'd been doing endurance sports for eight or 10 years. And so I'd continued to push my perception of what's possible again and again. And after doing that long enough, I realized it really comes down to, to a mental frame. Certainly there are skills and techniques that you learn. You get better physically, get better mentally, emotionally. Those are components. But at the end of the day, ocean rowing is a perfect example where it really comes down to a decision. Do you want to do this? And do you want to do it badly enough? And if so, then yes, you can find a way because ultimately there's nobody who's going to row across an ocean and not get tired. It doesn't matter how strong you are. It comes down to your desire and your ability to reorient when you have setbacks and challenges. And so when, when I came across ocean rowing, I was at a film festival and saw a woman who'd, a film about a woman who'd rowed around the world. And I realized, well, she wasn't an ocean rower when she got in her boat. She just decided to do this. Anybody can go and decide to do it. And... For a few weeks after that, the idea started you know, percolating in the back of my mind. I read a bunch of books on ocean rowing. It was about a month later where I first said to somebody in a very meek, sheepish tone, I said, I think I'm going to row across the ocean. I said it so quietly. She was like, what? And I was like, I, I'm going to row across the ocean. And I was almost surprised to say it out loud, but it was this this knowing that had been building for a few weeks until I finally said it out loud. And at that point began figuring out, okay, great. I have this idea. How do I actually go about and do that? I wasn't a rower, wasn't a sailor, had no idea where to begin. 
but that's really how it starts is, is the decision. Do you, do you remember how she responded when you say that? I It was in Kenya. It was on a little vacation in Lamu, Kenya. And so, you know, she was like, cool, great, go for it. I look forward to following. This was like November 2016. On, on that theme, any any thoughts about, about the power of actually articulating a dream in words, of, of saying it? That's really important is, is naming it, claiming it, saying it, believing it. You can believe in it, but if you, if you don't say it out loud, then do you really believe it? You know, so articulating it and also articulating it to people who are going to believe in you is part of it. Um, and if you ultimately believe it in enough, then other people will believe in it. You know, if you, if you say it with conviction and clarity, or even if you don't say it with it, but you know it's there, then that starts to be represented in other people's reaction. And then it kind of builds the momentum. Yeah, I agree. Um, and that's what I love about you. Um, what, what do you think is the biggest fear that often holds people back? Do you think it's people are afraid of being laughed at? Do you think it's people are afraid that someone's going to say, you're too high on yourself, you think you can do this thing, you can't do it? Like, What, what do you think people internally are experiencing? Well, I think people are often afraid of failure, right? We don't want to make a fool of ourselves. We don't, don't want to do something there's risk involved in, in naming and claiming an audacious goal. It's never a straight path, right? And so it's scary to go and say, I want to do this thing, especially if you're picking a goal that you don't know how to do. And ultimately, that's where growth comes from. If you pick a goal that you know how to do already, then there's not much growth that's going to happen along the way. You know, if, if um, you're a casual runner and you say, hey, I'm going to go do a 5K, I'm like, cool, you're pretty confident you can do that, right? So yeah, you might reinforce your commitment to running a little bit, but are you really going to level up and grow? Whereas if you pick some goal, maybe you're a speaker and you're like, I'm doing some talks. I want to do a talk for, yeah, I want to grow my speaking business next year. So I'm going to do like three talks and maybe reach a hundred people. If it's, if it's something you feel comfortable with, then it's not going to force that growth. But if you're choosing a goal that is actually making you uncomfortable, it's going to bring growth, but it's also going to be uncomfortable. Right. And so naming that is in, and it can be an inherently uncomfortable process because you know that there's risk involved. I, I love the, I love thinking about naming a goal as fostering growth and that, and that when that goal is bold and sometimes when it's big, like it, it pushes you. And when you, when you name something publicly, then you, you do have some degree of accountability. Absolutely. Even, even if it is the case, you know, that no one would necessarily get mad at you or, you know, there, there is this, this sense that like I have, I've put an aspiration into the world. Um, and so there are some stakes to do it. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and there's really good evidence and research showing that when you name something publicly, that your likelihood of completing it is significantly higher. There's a Ted talk on that topic actually about the value of, um, public declarations of your intentions and much higher likelihood of completing them. So, so you make this public declaration you have it on your website. How many people have done this row period ever? So before I rode from California to Hawaii, seven others had done it. Everyone had previously rode another ocean. So, so zero who from, had never done an ocean and seven total. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because um, leaving from a continent and in a rowboat is, is rather difficult, especially as a solo rower, the wind and waves push you back to land. And so getting off of California tends to be pretty difficult. A lot of people start and end up kind of coming back to land either in California or in Mexico and just not quite making it on the first go. Um, and uh, so I was the very first to do it as their first ocean row. 
Wow. And so, and so what's the beginning of this planning process? Is it, is it building a boat, you know, getting someone to build a boat? Is it, is it coming up with what the route will be? What, what's the first step? Well, look, it really depends on your resources. In my case, I didn't have the means to build a boat all on my own. And ultimately, in order to fulfill my dream, I had to make this dream bigger than me to get other people to be involved in this, in this, in this goal, in this process. So, you know, people think rowing across an ocean is okay. You, you train in a gym and then you get in a boat and go, but actually it's a lot of meetings, a lot of marketing, a lot of campaign development, brand building. So I created this brand and this nonprofit campaign called the United world challenge dedicated my expedition to raising scholarships to the schools. We just talked about United world colleges. And by doing that started to raise some sponsorship funding, started, raised a crowd fund to help cover expedition costs raised 77 grand in donations from followers to support these scholarships for students. And that's actually a lot of it. Now in parallel, of course, there's physical training, there's buying or building a boat, there's learning survival at sea and logistics and all those components. But ultimately, the way I approached it was really a business and a social impact venture. And do you, do you have any memory of the night before you were slotted to leave of what it felt like? Not not the night before, but certainly plenty of moments beforehand. I mean, I was incredibly stressed. I hadn't taken a day off in like six weeks, was working 12, 14, 16 hours a day, just getting everything ready. This was spring 2020, so um, pandemic was in full force. I had only three days of training in my boat because of lockdowns in Washington where the boat was built. So when it was finally finished and I was able to get out there, Squeezed in three fast days of training, then towed the boat from Washington down to California where I was leaving from. And it was basically just enough time to rush, get everything ready, and then push off. So there wasn't a whole lot of downtime. Actually, there was, there was none. There was no downtime. And I was incredibly stressed. I was in the worst physical shape I'd been in in probably a year. Um, I worked out like five times in the previous three months because I was just hustling to get all the logistics and everything finished. Um, and so in any calm moments that I had, I honestly just began to cry because I was absolutely so terrified and felt so worn out. I thought this is not the position I wanted to be in when I get in my boat. I wanted to be rested and feeling ready. Instead, I felt completely worn out. But that was the situation. You know, sometimes you got to take the hand you're dealt. Wow. And so the, so the day arrives and when you actually cast off from shore, so to speak. Was it just you? Were there other people around? What, what was going out? What did it, what was it like? There were, there were, there were a handful of people. I had um, some family, some friends, um, and I left at midnight, uh, basically looking for a weather window. It's a combination of what does the weather look like when there's calm winds and I can get offshore, and then what is a tide look doing? So combining the outgoing tide with, with when the weather window opens. Left at midnight on July 3rd, 2020, and rode for 20 hours straight uh, until about 8 p.m. the next day, getting as far offshore as I could so that when I rested, I wouldn't be blown back towards land. And the first day was amazing. There were humpback whales jumping out of the water and super pods of dolphins everywhere. And the ocean kind of rolled out this red carpet with really smooth seas so I could, I could get away and be out of relative danger because land is actually where the danger is in ocean rowing. And, and what was the most in the, I, I know you said you didn't work out that much in the few months immediately preceding, but what was the most on like a rowing machine or another boat? What was the most you'd ever rowed? I mean, I did some, some sets in the rowing machine. I think I built up to like three, four hour sets. Um, so I was in decent physical shape for sure. 
and I'd done three days of training in my boat when I picked it up in Washington. Um, but it's just enough to learn the basics of the equipment, you know, not enough to be very comfortable. Uh, so it was very much in over my head and feeling incredibly comfortable for the first month at sea. And so, so you do that first 20 hours and, and then you're, you're out past where you need to be so that you can take a rest. Um, and, and to paint a picture for people who are listening, like is someone beside you in another boat or it's really, it's just you. It's just me. No, there's no support boat, no chase boat, no resupply. So my boat contains everything I need. Brought three months of food. It's got 200 watts of solar, 200 amp hour battery bank. That powers my desalinator to produce drinking water from the ocean. And then I have all the supplies, spare materials, parts, etc. Plus a whole host of media equipment to document the expedition. One, so I can send it back via sat phone to use that story and media to raise the scholarship funds we talked about. And two, to document it for a documentary film that we're now working on. So everything I need while I'm out there completely alone. What's the longest you'd been alone before this journey? Not that long. <laughs> long enough to know that I enjoy solitude. I, I grew up with a great deal of time alone. Grew up in okay. Adirondack State Park in upstate New York. And my older siblings moved out early and my parents split up. And I spent a great deal of time in the woods by myself. Okay. So I was very comfortable spending time with myself from a young age. And that's one of the reasons why when I heard about ocean rowing, I knew I wanted to do it alone to develop my relationship with myself, have that experience of solitude. We have this idea culturally that if you spend that much time alone, you go crazy. And yet when you speak to people who've done it, they're not crazy at all. They just happen to know themselves really well. Now, if you're not drawn to that experience, I don't recommend it. But if you are drawn to it, and I was, and I had that intuition, I trusted it. And again, that first month was so difficult. I really hated myself for doing this. But by the end, I loved it. And I'm so grateful that I listened to that intuition and went and, and had this experience. I'm so interested in, in the idea of spending time by oneself. I've started in the last really two or three years doing a lot more meditation. And occasionally with mm -hmm. the retreats, I've never done a solo retreat. They've always actually been retreats in the you know silent, mm -hmm. but in the context of other people. But to, to go out with that knowledge that you had of, you know, your comfort with some degree of solitude and, and in another sense, like it would push you to that length of solitude would be a whole new experience. Uh, For sure. And, and there's integration that has to happen afterwards. You know, it took me a long time after coming back to land to be like myself again. Now that's not going back to who I was. It's a new normal, but still being able to have conversations for more than a half an hour and not be fatigued from it. Just simple things like that took quite a while. So I, while I was out there, although I had a sat phone to make phone calls, I mostly just sent messages. I went, um, you know, more than a month without hearing another another person's voice. Only made a couple of phone calls. So coming back, there's definitely a big integration period. And and when you're uh, not, like, how do you navigate? You just have a like, what's the technology to navigate? It's called a chart plotter, which is just Marine speak for a GPS drop in waypoints for where I want to go. Now it's adaptive like life. You know, you can make a plan in life, but you're not going to hit every little milestone along the way. As you get close to a milestone, you realize, do I need to hit that or do I start aiming for the next one? And that's what waypoints are. While I'm out there, I drop my next waypoint that could be anywhere from 50 to hundred miles out, aim for that for the next one, two, three days. As I get close to it, I drop my next waypoint. Each of these are approximating a best course towards Hawaii. Now, the very start and the very end of an ocean row, you do need to hit those milestones. Those waypoints matter because if you miss them, it's disastrous. 
But in the middle of the ocean, there's a wide margin. If I drift north or south or even drift backwards a bit, I'm not going to hit land. That's the risk. And there's enough margin to make up for that. But that's why for the first 20 hours of the row, I rode straight to get off land. And then when I was nearing Hawaii, I rode the last 36 hours straight so that I would actually be able to make it into the, the marina and the dock that I wanted to and not find myself washed up on some coral reef. And and when you're out there, most like how often are you seeing any kind of islands or land versus or most of the time is it just your There's surround? no island. Yeah, between California and Hawaii, there's there's no island. There are a couple islands off the coast of LA called the Channel Islands, but otherwise there's, there's nothing out there. So you're so you're just surrounded by water. Um, mm-hmm. I know in in prepping for this interview, I feel like you have a, a special relationship to the ocean. Do you, do you want to say anything about what the ocean conjures for you, like when you're surrounded by it? Or yeah, for sure. I mean, I'd never been out in the ocean before. I didn't have a deep relationship with the ocean. I spent a lot of time in nature, but the ocean was new to me. And the way we often refer to the ocean in popular culture and literature is is some almost like a nemesis. At minimum, we describe it as a mystery and dark and dangerous. And those things are certainly true to an extent. We need to respect the power of the ocean. But there's a lot more to the ocean than simply a fierce foe. I found as I spent more and more time at sea that I felt the ocean was really looking after me. And we actually see that in the science. The ocean provides half of the oxygen we breathe. It absorbs the excess, uh, the majority of our excess heat from carbon, from, from uh, global warming and our excess carbon. Um, it is the planet's life support system. And so as I was out there and I saw fish jumping out of the water and birds swooping down to eat the fish, it dawned on me as a, as a metaphor, the ocean is like a womb for, the, for earth, for life. It's the source of life on earth. It's the support system for all of us. And the ocean has our back if we have the ocean's back. And so while I was out there, it dawned on me that there's a lot more I want to do for the ocean. You know, we raised the 77 grand for scholarships for EWC. I kind of ticked that box. That was something I always wanted to do since going to the schools. But it also dawned on me that I want to do more specifically for the ocean. So it's not yet public, but later this year, I'm going to announce my next expedition. And that's going to focus specifically on ocean conservation because it's time we do something for the oceans. And how many, how many hours are you rowing on a typical day once you're, once you're past that first day? Or does it depend day by day? It varied. It varied, but average was around 10, 10 hours a day. Okay. And I, I know on top of rowing, you're documenting it, which... I am one of the many people who loved following um, and benefited immensely. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, and I think you're a great writer too. Um, but I, I wonder what else, so a typical day, you're rowing, you're documenting, are you napping? Are you, you know, kind of just being out in the world? Like what, what's yeah, typical? Yeah, yeah there's a, there are a lot of activities. So you would row, typically row in, in shifts of a couple of hours at a time. In between a shift, I might have a snack. Um, make some water, you know, that's ocean speak for desalinating water, produce my drinking water, um, clean my equipment, clean myself, um, clean my clothes, um, type up these blogs, send back the photos and videos, send back messages with my team, you know, a number of things. So navigating, communicating, cleaning, hygiene, uh, cooking, and then occasionally going for a swim, you know, doing things like that. I have to get in the water, clean the underside of the boat to cut off barnacles. Those slow down the boat a great deal. So there's there's a number of things, you know, when when not rowing, there's plenty of other stuff to be done. And would you like listen to audiobooks, listen to music, read? <laughs> That's funny you ask. 
Yeah, I, this might be a leading question. So um, on day three of the expedition, my iPhone, which I had brought with photos of home and audiobooks and podcasts and all of that, it factory reset in my pocket. So oh I lost my, everything. Oh it just my bricked. God. I pulled it out of my pocket and I looked at it to take a photo. And it said, hola, bonjour, uh, you know, hello. And I'm like, oh, shit. Um, and there's nothing you can do, right? You can reset your iPhone with a Wi-Fi. But in order to connect my phone to the Wi-Fi I had on my sat, sat phone, it needed to be a working phone. So it was, it was a loop that I couldn't break. So in other words, I didn't really have much to listen to. I had a backup phone with a little bit of music. But in the end, I really didn't listen to it much. I found that it took me out of the experience rather than immersing me into it. And I would just spend hours looking at nature around me. I would spend hours thinking about how to fix broken equipment that I had on board. We would think about different things in my life, the future, the past, family, friends, the ocean, ocean plastic. I would just sit during the 10, 12 hours a day that I'm rowing, just sit and think, which is a rare gift in this day and age. Yeah. I mean, nobody has that kind of time to to sit and think and, and be with themselves. Um, was there a moment that felt most transcendent? There were a lot, but one particular moment was my last sunrise. I'd rode the previous 24 hours straight. It was on day 70. I woke up and I saw land and knew I wanted to make it before dark the next day. So there wasn't any time to rest. So I row all the last day, row all the last night. Sun comes up on the last morning. And I'm looking at all the waves around me, this beautiful sunrise, big puffy pink clouds, these majestic mountains and islands in the distance. And I just had this overwhelming experience of a kind of unity with the ocean. I felt like I could see every ripple and wave in the ocean at once, and I could feel them coming towards and through me. It was a very surreal experience. Um, and then it ended and I was like, oh shit, I have to get back to rowing and had 12 more hours to row until I made it in. But it was a special moment. Was there a scariest moment on the journey? There were plenty. Yeah, there was, um, I had a lot of setbacks. My rowing seat broke and had to figure out how to repair that while I was at sea without, without the parts that I needed. And, um, you know, there were, there were really, there was really rough weather in the first week once I got offshore and had to spend days three through seven inside of my cabin, just waiting for the weather to pass. And, uh, there's nowhere to run or hide to. I'd lost my audiobooks and music and so forth. So I just kind of had to lay in the cabin wondering like, what the hell is wrong with me for trying this thing? And, um, you know, the, the fear was less in those moments that, um, it was less about my physical well-being. I could at that point decide to pull the, you know, pull the escape hatch, so to speak, and get a tow back to land. I was still within 200 miles, and so the Coast Guard could come and get me. The fear was much more around my ego. It was around saying, hey, I'm going to go do this thing, and then realizing, oh, my gosh, I don't think I can. It was around all these commitments that I made and then feeling like I wasn't good enough to fulfill them. Those were the biggest fears and the hardest moments in the, in the trip. Was there a, Was there a happiest moment of the journey? Yeah, I think some of the happiest moments were the small moments. Not these big breakthrough moments necessarily, but just the small moments where I felt like I was in exactly the right place at the right time, doing what I should be doing, uh, calling upon my skills and my experience to be out here and sharing the story with the world 
people were at home in 2020 looking for a story and I was able to provide that. And so the happiest moments were when things felt like they were all going right. Mm. You've made me think about um, this poem. Uh, and I, I think it's by this poet named Hafiz, but the idea is a line, mm-hmm. like the place where you are right now, God circled on a map for you. Um, and I feel like that idea, even if you're not religious, you don't believe in a God, but just the, those rare moments in life, you really, you just feel like you're, you're where you're meant to be. Um, are, yeah. are so special. And, and, yeah. And that can come through special moments, but I think the real knack is, is finding a way to remember that in every moment. You know, I give keynote talks about this experience for a variety of audiences and share some lessons from the journey. And one of the lessons is to start where you are. And it seems incredibly simple, deceptively simple, almost like a truism, almost like it doesn't need to be said. But actually, we look for all this evidence not to start where we are. We look for evidence for why we can't do the things that we want to do. Because we say, well, I can't do it yet because I haven't done X, Y, Z to get the skills or accomplishments that I need. I can't get that job because I haven't gone to this school. Or I can't go do this thing because this thing happened to me in the past and now I carry that as baggage. Or we look at other people who have done something similar and we tell ourselves it's not worth the effort because we'll never be as good or never do as good a job. But the only place you can ever start your journey is where you are right now. And so it comes back to your point. You're in that circle. That's the perfect spot. Start where you are. I I feel like it's really empowering (laughs) to think about that right and and the amount of mental energy we expend kind of blaming ourselves for not being in the place we think we need to be to start something (laughs) rather rather than just getting moving um and i I brought up my grandpa i I brought up my grandpa at the beginning that idea always moving forward he he lived the last seven years of his life with cancer um by the end of his life two Mm. cancers but he really embodied this idea of never Never looking back, not about never reflecting in a way that you can learn from it, but never, never obsessing over, you know, these ideas of, oh, did I misstep or did I go the wrong path? And instead being like, I mean, I I love the idea you brought up earlier about the waypoints of just like, well, you know, recalculating, (laughs) like I'm finding the new way forward. Exactly. It's adaptive. You know, life is adaptive. You make a plan then you have to let it go. Your plan isn't the way things will go. It's how you intend for them to go now and you plan and you replan and you adapt. Absolutely. Um, I'm curious. I, I wrote down different lessons that, that I have drawn from your journey and that you wrote about, oh, awesome. but I, but I, but I, I'd love yeah, to ask, but I mean, the first one is you, as you mentioned earlier, is that, you know, you have a quote on your website, set a goal so big, you have to grow into the person who can achieve it. I love that idea of, of goals being things that can pull us towards growth. Um, and, I, and I also love this idea of challenging one's self-perceived limits. We have so much limiting self-talk um, or, or ideas about things that I, I you know, I, I think the language, anytime you say, I could never, <laughs> I could never mm-hmm. do X, um, that in so many ways just shuts down so many doors that could be open. Um, And you write beautifully about that, but I'm curious if you could talk a tiny bit more about challenging your own self-perceived limits. Um, And I'm going to tag a second piece on, because I know you also care deeply about thinking about mental health. How do you, how do you push your limits and do it in a way that's, that's self-compassionate? That's not, 
you know, that's not too hard on oneself. Yeah. Well, it also comes back to why you want to do something. If you're doing it because you don't feel you're good enough or you need to prove something, then ultimately whatever joy you achieve through that accomplishment is more of an extrinsic rather than an intrinsic experience. So I think getting clear on a why that's really authentic to you in your own journey and your own growth and your own experience rather than something you're trying to prove is really important. Um, and really for me, the, the growth process, the thing I love about endurance art, doing these expeditions, picking really audacious goals is, is less achieving them. And, and when I reached Hawaii, it's weird. I didn't feel like it was an accomplishment. I really didn't. Getting in the boat was an accomplishment. Reaching the start line was an accomplishment. Not giving up at all the setbacks along the way was an accomplishment. But once I was out there, it really felt more like just an honor and a privilege to be able to witness the ocean and to be able to learn from it and grow. And so it comes back to what is our goal, you know, and you can have these external goals as well. And I was happy we raised the scholarship fund and did all of that. But it's also the growth that happens along the way. And it comes back to this idea that we can grow to achieve our goals, right? It's, it's not about setting a goal that we know we can achieve um, setting it, or looking at a goal that we can't achieve and asking ourselves, can I get there today? You can say, I can't get there today, so it's not worth it. But the question is, can you grow into the person who can get there, right? I find that idea really exciting. And so picking goals, whether it's external or internal, whatever kind of goal, and growing into the person who can do that. And it can even be personal stuff. I want to grow into the person who can forgive my parents. I want to grow into the person who can um, be a trusted, caring friend, I want to, you know, these different areas, how can I grow into that person? Mm, important, that, that aspect of, you know, I want to grow into a friend who people rely on. I want to grow into someone who shows up. Uh, I, I wonder, you, you write about gratitude. I think a lot about gratitude. What, what did being out on the ocean uh, teach you about gratitude? Gosh, there's a lot. I mean, we hear a lot about it, right? We know that being in a kind of gratitude orientation helps us be in a growth mindset and see opportunities rather than rather than obstacles. But it's easier said than done. You know, we get into these moments where we feel like things are happening to us rather than for us. And um, for me, getting back into the gratitude space, really the easiest way when I was on the ocean was just getting back to the present moment, looking around and seeing the beauty of the ocean around me. And it's certainly easy on the ocean. It's a super beautiful place. You know, the colors, the waves, the textures, the sky is all so stunning. But the fact is, if we slow down in our daily life, I think there's often beauty around us if we just slow down enough to notice it. And by focusing on that beauty, I find that is a good entry point into finding some gratitude and using that to move forward. Well, while you were rowing, did would you get updates from your team on what was happening in the world or did you get to kind of be unplugged from the news for 70? Yeah, very little, very little. I was very much in my own little world. I forgot that COVID was happening, was not tracking global events at all. It kind of felt like the whole world was water. And even, even, even a metaphysical idea, I felt like I realized I'm just another incarnation of water. I mean, we're 70% water, right? Like everything around us is water water is a source of life. And so uh, the world affairs fell away and everything that ever existed was water and anything else just felt like an illusion. 
were you able in a certain set, like when you, obviously there's a huge adjustment coming back into the world. Do you feel like now, you know, all this time later, are you able to kind of step out of the flow of the news of the world and the stories of the world when you want to, or is it kind of once you're back in the world, it's hard to do that? Well, it comes, comes down to decisions, choices, and habits. And, you know, currently I, I start the morning reading a newsletter by uh, Eurasia Group, uh, Signal Media or G Zero Media on geopolitics. I find it super interesting. I like to be aware of of those kinds of things going on. But there's a downside too. You know, spending mental energy on things if you're not actively involved in them is taking that energy away from things that you have agency and control over. And you can take that to an extreme and consume news and media around the clock and be completely disempowered in your life. And so I think it's just being intentional about how and when you know, we, we follow affairs and in what ways we want to get involved in them. Um, I think local is really an important scale because that's where you can affect change more easily. I agree with that. Um, when you're out on the ocean, you ever, you ever do a night as like a special night, almost like a date night for yourself, you know, row all day (laughs) and then do something weird at night just to mix it up. Well, I often was pretty tired by the end of the day and would go to bed and, and, and get some rest. Um, but the nights where I would do a little bit of a night shift while rowing were really beautiful. Once I got comfortable with it, it took me, it took me a while. You know, I'm not one that I thought was scared of the dark, but while I was out there in the ocean by myself, it definitely took a minute to feel comfortable being on deck at night. Um, but as I went on, you know, the, the night shift, seeing shooting stars and bioluminescent plankton was always really beautiful. And it was kind of this, this tug of war where finally the sun is down. So there isn't this you know, blazing sun roasting me. So it's actually more comfortable on deck, but also I wanted to sleep. So it was kind of a a give and take depending on the day. Any, I mean, there's so many lessons obviously you learned from the journey, but any others that you specifically wanted to talk about? And we talked about self-perceived limits, about setting goals, about gratitude, about the beauty of the ocean. I think those are all, are all really important. I think one, one last thing is, we talked about this a little bit earlier on, but spending time with yourself. You know, people look at me on the boat by myself and they say, okay, he's totally alone. But I think if we can reframe solitude as spending time with yourself, there's a lot of power that can come from that. You know, Lao Tzu said, knowing others is strength, knowing yourself is true power, right? Being able to spend time with yourself, getting clear on what is true for you, being comfortable with yourself, being, being your own advocate and friend, um, has been really helpful in my journey. And so that's just something I share with people when I have the chance to invest in quality time with yourself. When you're, when you're on land, um, do you have favorite ways to spend time with yourself? It can be harder, you know, in the daily, daily affairs to remember how and why to do that. But when I'm on top of it, um, just getting out, having a quiet walk in the woods by myself. I spend a lot of time just walking through nature. Um, you know, even if I'm in a city, going going on a walk and just listening. Um, for me, I uh, the quality time is often movement. So if I can do some movement outside, that feels like quality time with myself. Mm. I want to ask, I, I know you give a lot of talks about your experiences and I was in the room when you gave one of them and witnessed everyone be beyond inspired. What for you is the most special thing that you get to witness 
in other people when you give those mm. talks. You know, maybe it comes back at you when they come up to you at the end of the, you know, after the talk and say something, or maybe they send a message, or, or you can just sort of sense what's the most special. Gosh, appreciate the question, Ari. Uh, I think it's when people feel lit up, they they realize, wait a minute, this guy who wasn't a rower, wasn't a sailor, went and did this big thing, and it helps shift their perceptions of what they can do, right? And so just seeing people get lit up and inspired means a lot to me. Um, it's uh, listening to a book by Chris Anderson, the head of TED, um, listening to it for the second time. The book's called TED Talks. And in it, he describes, I think, four archetypes of talks that you should not do. And the fourth is an inspirational talk. And it's funny because that's kind of, kind of, kind of my thing. And it's, it's, um, it's interesting because it's a fine line to walk, right? If you go in with the goal of inspiring people, it can be, it can backfire. But, um, I really enjoy that when it works out well, just being able to share my story as honestly as I can. And, you know, never would guess this is the work I do. This is the thing I do. And just sharing that honest story and finding a way for it to light people up just by being honest means a lot to me. And, and he says it can backfire in what way? Like it, it can just basically, land. Basically people try to be inspiring by copying other inspirational talks and then it's not authentic. Hmm. You know, um, it, listen, listen, listen to the book, read the book. It'll, it'll make sense. I will. Um, I, I will. I was um, listening. I was listening to it last night on the way to a talk. Uh, and I was like, Oh yep, I am definitely doing that thing that is tricky, but, um, yeah, it's, it's something that I enjoy and, and feedback is absolutely fantastic and continuing to grow the business. So it's going well. I, I, I can say from a sample size of one, I think your talk is extremely authentic and the particularities of your journey, uh, is extremely authentic. I have one last question related to the ocean rowing, and then I want to shift gears for the last maybe 15 minutes of our chat. Um, I saw, which I think is amazing. You joined, um, the explorers club. Um, and maybe you can, you can say a little more about that, but in, in looking it up, I, um, I know that it's a club that has members who've done all kinds of first, first to the North Pole, first to the South Pole, first to Summit Mount Everest, uh, first descent to the deepest point in the ocean. Um, it has been in existence since first to space, for, first to the moon. Um, it is, from my research, been in existence since 1904. Um, I think that's a very cool club to be a part of. I think as a trait, exploration is something that everybody could could use a little more of in their lives. And I, I wonder to, to take it out for a second of these, these kind of big, you know, rowing across the ocean or climbing a big mountain, but could you say anything to people listening about what you think the role of just exploration in a human life can be? Exploration is simply a quest to ask questions, explore, be curious, and you can explore relationships. You can explore inside yourself. You can explore the dirt in your backyard. And so we have this idea that everything has been explored already, but actually it's a whole new frontier of exploration all the time. And especially when it comes to the oceans, we actually know way more about outer space than we do the oceans. The moon is mapped in way more detail than the ocean is mapped. Um, and so there's a lot of exploration that's still happening. And as far as what I do with the Explorers Club, it's really bringing uh, citizen science to my expeditions on the ocean, 
to gather data on ocean health, um, to be able to make more informed decisions on ocean conservation and protection. Uh, but as far as exploration goes, it can seem like a kind of outdated or obtuse idea, but ultimately it's available to all of us. Just go outside and be curious or go inside of yourself and bring questions. Mm, outside or inside. Um, I want to I want to shift gears to a to a different topic um, for a moment, and we talked a little bit in the context of your rowing about challenges and dealing with challenges. This past year, you experienced a particularly intense, profound challenge. Um, correct me, correct me if I'm wrong. I think you were 35 years old at the time. I don't know if you still are, or if you're 36, uh, but you experienced a heart attack. I had a heart attack one month before my 35th birthday. I was I was 34. Wow. Um, and I, I want, I want to jump in with a, with a kind of intense question, but in the immediate aftermath of, of that happening, what, what did you feel? I mean, here you are, anybody who knows you, you are like the peak of, of physical health and, and suddenly you just experience this, um, this heart attack. What, what did you feel? Ah, uh, furious. I mean, uh, you can imagine anyone in decent health who has a heart attack is probably going to be pretty upset. I'm a professional athlete. I've been spending the last 15 years investing in my health for my well-being, for my profession, for my future, and for no fault of my own. All of a sudden, I had a heart that's permanently damaged. So it's a huge setback. And I process emotions and life through movement. And in the aftermath of that, I had to just rest and not move at all uh, for three months. So it was incredibly difficult. Um, could have obviously been a lot worse. I wasn't in the backcountry. I wasn't on a hike. I wasn't in the ocean. I was 10 minutes from the hospital. I got the care I needed. And because I'd been taking care of my health, I was able to recover really well. So it's now been seven months. I'm back on my feet. Uh, five months after the heart attack, I ran a marathon, which is kind of a test drive of my body and went well. Um, was recovered within a couple of days. No heart issues of any kind. So, you know, back on my feet again. Um but it just goes to show that, yeah, you can't really take anything for granted. Life is short. Life show, throws us curveballs and uh, make make each day count because it could be our last. Yeah, I mean, that really puts that in perspective in a, in a way that most people obviously never experience. Um, there's a question I often ask in these interviews. It often is the first question I ask. I ask people, what are some of the things in this world you love the most? Um, and they don't specifically have to be things. But I'm, I'm curious if in the aftermath of the heart attack, if your answer to that question, some of the things in this world you love the most, if that became clearer, and, and if yes, what those things are. Things I like the most in this world. I mean, I don't know that it became any more clear. I was pretty clear on it beforehand. You know, spending time in nature, being active, um, working towards growth and goals. The challenge with that experience was that it felt like for a while my growth was stalled. But like any setback, it can also be an opportunity for growth, you know, and definitely um, it was another opportunity for lessons, you know, being adaptable. All these years, exercise is what kept me healthy. After the heart attack, it was rest that would make me healthy. Hardcore rest, <laughs> sedentary, sitting freaking still. And so by being adaptive and, and being able to reframe training as rest, I was able to recover. And so it was, you know, an opportunity to just say, okay, how can I, how can I continue to respond to what life throws at me? Um, how can I use language to, to my advantage? 
know, at first it was when I, when I had to rest so much and I couldn't go out to events, I was thinking, okay, I can't do that because I have a heart condition, but that kind of language doesn't really help. Right. It just makes it worse. And I started saying to myself, I can't go because I'm recovering from a heart condition. And by making that little shift, focusing on the goal, focusing on recovery, helped me feel better emotionally. And then that helps me better feel, feel better physically over time as well. And so it was just another opportunity to reflect on how I can adapt to this, what language and approach and mindset helps me work through this as best as possible. And, and anything really specific you'd say to someone listening who struggles sometimes with feeling self-pity, which is kind of a normal human experience to sometimes feel self-pity um, of what things are, are helpful to you when the self-pity impulse arises to tame it or to <laughs> make it go away. Well, look, sometimes life is hard and we can be honest about that. Pretending it doesn't hard doesn't make it easier, right? So if there's a hard moment, open up about it. Find people you can be honest, transparent, and, and have a little catharsis. You know, if you need to cry about it, don't hold that in. Let yourself cry. You know, like if you're holding that in, it's going to come out later and probably at a less opportune time. So create space to actually feel it. That's step one, you know, and once you've felt it, probably it'll be lighter on the other side. And it's by in that more light space that then you can have the clarity of like, okay, what do I actually want to do? Hmm. Can, can you speak for a minute on, on both of these experiences, the ocean journey and also the aftermath of the heart attack on what you've learned about community? Um, and obviously any of these kind of physical feats rowing across an ocean, climbing a mountain, one would think of them as these extremely individual pursuits. And yet, as you've talked about, you had a team. Um, how important is community in, in any sort of goal that we set? If it's a goal that, re a goal that requires growth, community is really important. If it's a goal that re doesn't require growth, then you're probably already there. But then why are you doing that goal in the first place? So I think when we're really picking goals that will challenge us to grow, then having a support network, whether it's a core cadre of people around you who are your team and allies and close confidants. Great. If it's an even bigger goal and having a broader community that wants to get involved and support it and be a part of this mission, then that's, that's even more helpful. I know in terms of the United world challenge, my ocean expedition that it would have never been possible if not for the community, you know, this global community that rallied and raised 75 grand in a crowd fund to help, complete the expedition. And the only reason they did that is because it was trying to raise these scholarship funds. And it was that broader focus beyond just my own experience that enrolled other people as part of this experience and made it possible. And uh, also just the idea that we can, we can grow together. So I think figuring out the connection to community and, and how to work together is really essential for goals that are growth oriented. Hmm. I, I want to, end the interview by asking some, some short questions, some very short ones. Um, and, and hopefully you'll just answer straight from the heart. Um, the first is, do you keep anything on your, your night table or your bedside table or anything on your wall that acts as a reminder to you every day? Oh my gosh, plenty. Yeah. I've a lot of things. Like I, I, I like to have a nourishing space. Um, one thing that I've been doing for about six or seven years now is keeping a journal that's called one line a day. It's super simple. The book 
It's a book that you can you can just get these on Amazon. Basically, each page refers to one day, and then the page is broken out into five years. So when you start filling it out, let's say you you bought this book and you started filling it out tomorrow on February third, you'd open it up to the page February third, write in the section for February third, twenty twenty three. Tomorrow, turn the page, write February four. Next year, you're going to come back to that same page. See what you did the prior year. So I've done that already. Last year, I finished my first book. And when filling out the page at the end of the day, I can see what happened this day, one year ago, two years ago, three years ago. And it's fascinating to see the growth. And because it's such a short section, right? This takes me 20 seconds to fill out every night. It's very easy to keep up the habit. And even if I forget for a couple of days, I can go back and fill it in. And so that simple exercise, I find really helpful to bookend the day, have a moment for reflection. What went well? What am I excited about? What was a lesson learned? Um, what's something to celebrate? And then be able to look back on what happened a year ago. And it's remarkable, the synchronicities of from one year to the next. Hmm. Um, any, anything on your wall, like a painting or a quote? or No quotes. I have plenty of art that I find inspiring. Um, a lot of plants in my house. I like to have a lot of plants and just watching plants grow. I find a lot of joy in that tending to something, caring for something, seeing it, seeing it grow and, and, um, watching new shoots sprout out. And so things like that, I find really nice to have in the space just to ground me. Do you have a tattoo? And if you don't, what would, if you got a tattoo, what would it, what would it be? <laughs> Funny. I, <laughs> I, I have a few tattoos. I'm actually in the process of removing one of them. It's not particularly offensive. I just realize, you know, I spend time in the sun. These things might not age well. So I just kind of view it as spring cleaning for the body. But it's a slow and very painful process. It hurts much more to get a tattoo removed than have it put on. So I don't recommend it. Um, I have one big tattoo on my shoulder that I love. And uh, folks go to my Instagram, Tez Steinberg, or go to the YouTube for United World Challenge at United World Challenge. You can see that one. It's a fractopus, a fractal octopus, um, which I got long before the ocean expedition, but is now fitting since I, I have a close connection to ocean creatures. Well, what was the symbolism when you got it? Well, a fractal is a fascinating concept. It's a very simple set of rules that you repeat again and again. And from that simple repetition, you get very complex results. And I think that's a wonderful principle for life. Ultimately, you can ask yourself a few simple questions. What are my values? What are my habits? How do I show up? And by having consistency and positive habits, then you can have outrageous results. One oar stroke doesn't get you across an ocean. Doing a couple thousand oar strokes every day, you can cross an ocean. It was one million from California to Hawaii. Taking one step doesn't get you very far. But if you need to line a few up, then all of a sudden you've run a marathon. And so these very simple actions repeated again and again is what creates a fractal. And I think it's a great representation of how we can choose to live our lives. I wonder, I, I sense you're keeping under wraps, which I think makes sense, your next big adventure to launch that more formally. But unrelated to that, is there any... Um, travel journey or, you know, adventure that you're really hungering to one day do not necessarily in the short term, but that you're just super excited about. No major travel adventures. I, I have this next expedition that I'll announce in August of 2023. And so spending a lot of energy lining up sponsors and partners and, 
and the campaign around that to go public in August. So that's really where my focus is. Once that's complete, look out a few years down the road. I'm I'm really passionate about social enterprise, using business as a force for good in the world. And and so my, you know, five years out, I want to be running scalable modular social enterprises that can make a difference in coastal communities around the world. So it's less a travel adventure and more kind of a social enterprise um, focus. Final question I want to ask that I've asked a lot of folks um, that actually relates to mortality. Um, if a hundred years from now and you and I are both long gone, there <laughs> exists somewhere in the world your tombstone. Um, and even if you don't intend to have a tombstone, just for this question, we'll we'll go with it. Let's imagine a world where there's a new practice. Before you die, it's your responsibility to write the inscription on that tombstone that sums up what you hope you contributed to the world or what you hope your life could teach others. At this moment in time, what do you think you'd want written on that tombstone? I saw, well, this isn't, this isn't my own thinking. I saw this brilliant, let me see if I can find it. Saw this absolutely brilliant thing on Instagram the other day. (laughs) We're in the era where epitaphs are um, Instagram copies, uh, (laughs) sadly, but it's the case. Let me see if I can find it. It's, It's brilliant. So I'll give credit. My epitaph, I would, I would borrow ideas from this guy, Zach Pogreb has a post on Instagram where he said the following thing and I would, I would customize this for my epitaph. Surround yourself with relentless humans, people who plan in decades but live in moments, train like savages but create like artists, obsess in work, relax in life. People who know this is finite and choose to play infinite games. Find people going up mountains, climb together. Wow. It's an amazing idea for us to end with. I, I'm i grateful for you sharing that. Um, and as you mentioned, it's from, from someone else's Instagram. Uh, but wow. I, I, I want to close this interview, first of all, by thanking you, Tez, for such a special conversation. Um, and frankly, thank you for inspiring me since I first met you, I think it was 2019 that we met. Um, so it's been a few years, but but I have watched the journey. Um, I have I have been inspired by every aspect of the journey, not just the row, um, and by by the generosity with which um, you share your story. So I'm I'm grateful for that as well. So thank you for being here with me. Thank you, Ari. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I want to also just take a moment to thank anyone listening. I'm really appreciative of you taking the time. I hope you'll listen to more episodes of Once Upon a Conversation. I have genuinely been inspired and nourished by every one of the conversations I've had. And so I hope you'll choose to encounter the wisdom and really just the humanness of all the people I've been lucky enough to talk to through this project. So thank you again for tuning in.